Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark's fourth chapter. As we look again to the words of our Lord in this really interesting section of this gospel. Mark chapter 4. Follow along as I read the text for our study this morning, verses 26 through 29. Mark 4, 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night, gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Mrs. Cunningham was my first grade teacher. She was easily old enough to be my grandmother, and I I loved Mrs. Cunningham. She may have been one of the sweetest human beings I've ever been in the same room with. She was so patient with me. I remember remember many parent-teacher conferences with little Ricky. I remember one time uh, going up in the middle of her lecture, and I, I don't know why I remember this. She was talking about something, and I went right up in the middle to tell her that I was going to go on vacation uh, in a few weeks and just wanted her to tell me about that. And it was frozen in my mind where she said, this is not the time to talk about that, Ricky. So gracious. I love Mrs. Cunningham. I clearly remember her enthusiasm and her excitement. Whatever she taught was the most important thing that could ever be learned at any point in the history of time. She drew me in like no one else I think ever has. I I distinctly remember the experiment. It was so clear in my mind. The experiment was simply this. And once I begin telling you this experiment, you will remember either having done it or done it to a younger kid yourself. We all were given styrofoam cups filled a third of the way up with potting soil. And then she came around and each student, she gave one little bean seed. We held it in our hands until we were all instructed what to do next. We took the bean and placed it in the soil. And then she came around with more soil and put it on top of the seeds. She then came around with a little water bucket and watered each of our styrofoam cups. And then at the end, she said, we're going to put these over. We put our names on the the, uh, styrofoam cups. Actually, I could read my name. I think she put our names on the styrofoam cups. We put them all over on a table beside the window. And she said, boys and girls, just watch what happens in the next few days. Came back to school the next day. 20 kids run to the table. Nothing happened. Day two, we ran to the table, still dirt. Day three, we ran to the table and 
oohs and ahs were heard all over the state of Tennessee because all these little green sprouts were coming up out of the soil, except for mine. (laughs) Are you laughing with me or at me? I was heartbroken. Me and another kid, nothing was happening in our soil. And we came back the next day, and she, Mrs. Cunningham, just wait, just wait. We came back the next day, nothing. Then we came back the next day, and on the same day, both of us looked, and we had little sprouts coming out of our soil as well. The profundity of a seed going into soil and making a plant amazed that first grade class like nothing I can remember. But that reality ought not to fail to amaze us. Our Lord Jesus himself saw that as such a miraculous wonder of his creation. He uses it as a substantial illustration for the saving of souls in eternity from a Christless hell into a Christ-filled eternity. This parable that we just read is only found in Mark. This is the only place that we find it in all four Gospels. As we've noted, it's important to always ask in all of these little paragraphs, these little pericopes, these little stories or parables or vignettes, why is it here? And you have to think when you're reading the Gospels on a few different levels. First of all, why did the Holy Spirit inspire this to go here in the place before and after what is before and after it? And also, why is Jesus saying this in the context of what he's saying? What is Mark doing with what Jesus has said and done? And why is Jesus teaching what he's teaching in the order and in relation to what's previous and after what he's teaching? What's happening in the text is important. It's exactly inspired by the Holy Spirit to be studied in consecutive order with what came before it and to fix the context for what comes after it. Now, as we talked about over and over, Mark is doing two big things. He's doing a lot of things in this gospel. When Mark is writing this gospel, though, two things pop out of the text above all else. First of all, it's presentation. Here is Jesus. He is the one who is worth following because of who he is, What he did, what he said, and how he cared. He's presenting to us Christ. But alongside of that, because of who Christ is, because of what he's done, because of how he cares, because of of all that he taught, because of all that, he's now showing us how we're to be prepared to understand a discipleship relationship with him and our fellowship with him and how we're to take the gospel to the world. It's presentation and preparation. That's what Mark is focusing on. The presentation of Jesus as Messiah, Lord, and Savior and preparation for the followers for fruitful discipleship. Remember the context. Mark 4 begins with the parable of the four soils with the Lord's own explanation of the meaning in which he says, if you don't get this parable, it's impossible to get any others. Why does he say that? Because this parable is about, if you remember, four different soils, three of which are are unproductive. 
The first demonstrates by our Lord's own explanation a heart that is unresponsive to the gospel. It hears the gospel, doesn't care, walks away, could care less. The second is, is a, 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 an impulsive response to the gospel. Yes, I believe, and then over time and with persecution, it fades away. And the third is perhaps the most dangerous. It's one that is a, is a distracted commitment to the gospel. Immediate response, sustained for a while, but then the distraction of the, of the world pull the heart away from focusing on commitment to Christ and put commitment on other things in the world. And then the fourth is a fruitful soil. It, this represents a heart that is responsive and it bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. In other words, not everyone's gonna have the same level or kind or fruitful ministry, but it does produce fruit. Then in verses 21 to 25, he records, Mark records the Lord's explanation of what fruitful discipleship is. Remember, they hear the word, they accept the word and they bear fruit. Very simple. Now in this parable, Jesus continues to caringly equip these men and us to be prepared for the responses that we would face as we sow the seed, which we've explained is simply evangelizing, telling others the good news of Jesus, how he can save from sin and from a Christless eternity. In this little four-verse section, this little parable that's only found in Mark, we're introduced to an issue that actually would perplex every generation from the original followers and listeners to Jesus all the way up to today. What is man's responsibility in salvation? And what is God's responsibility in salvation? If you have not yet wrestled with that question, I promise you with any growth and any amount of time, you will what, what, what is man's part? What is God's part? The two um, extremes, at least as they shout at each other, are, are Arminians who would say to those who believe in God's sovereignty, well, you're taking a human choice away, human prerogative away. You're making man robots. And that's just a straw man argument. And then the, the Calvinistic side would look at the Arminian side and say, you think it's only man's decision and God's not involved in all. And that's a caricature as well. But the point is that you can back up that argument all the way to Jesus' time. In fact, he initiates in this passage our thoughts about who's really responsible in salvation, God or man? So let's look at it together and identify three indispensable factors in the work of salvation. Three indispensable factors at work in the work of salvation. The first is in verse 26, the duty of man's evangelistic responsibility. The duty of man's evangelistic Responsibility. Remember the context, he's talking about sowing the seed and he's not simply talking about preachers. He says if anyone sows the seed, if anyone tells the gospel, if anyone is faithful to evangelize. Verse 26, and he was saying, stop right there, we've said there's two ways to identify who Jesus is talking about in this passage. When he says he was saying to them, those are the disciples and the followers that had come near. And then he 
Mark expands back out. Instead of talking to this small group of believers, now he comes back out to probably when Jesus was sitting in the boat, he was saying, generally, he was preaching, saying to anyone who would hear, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. What is the kingdom of God? I, I have to be honest with you. I, I read so many lengthy descriptions of this, all of which were helpful at some level. But I don't think when Jesus said this in a simple phrase, he needed a, a Bible dictionary to explain what he was talking about. The kingdom of God is simply the sphere of salvation. If you want it specifically, it's, it's the people and place where God rules. The people and the place where God rules. The people is where we see now in this generation. Until the Lord comes back and establishes his physical kingdom, we see him ruling in, in people. He's ruling in the hearts of people. It's difficult to read the front page of the paper and say, this is the kingdom of God. No, Ephesians 2 tells us that the prince of the power of the air rules this world right now. But God does rule in his kingdom, in the hearts of believers by giving us a worldview and a sustaining presence of his gracious gifting that we can endure and enjoy his presence in this world. So it's a people and a place. There is a place where the kingdom of God will be manifest. He will come day, someday come, put his feet Literally on a mount just outside of Jerusalem, it will split. He will establish a physical throne where he will rule and reign and the kingdom will be established. All of the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies physically will be fulfilled and he will physically reign as the kingdom of God on this earth. But until then, he just rules and reigns in our hearts. Right, right here, he's just talking about the, the sphere of salvation. Whether a people or a place, the sphere of salvation is like something. And he returns to the simple world of agriculture. You know, I was reading a commentary this week. And sometimes you read a paragraph and you think, that's really good. And I tried to kind of pick some things out of it because I thought that would be helpful. And I butchered it, so I decided I would just read it to you. James Edwards says it like this. Isn't this really neat? I love the way he says this. A more banal comparison could not be imagined. The kingdom of God should be likened to something grand and glorious, to shimmering mountain peaks, crimson sunsets, the opulence of potentates and the lusty glory of a gladiator. But Jesus likens it to seeds. The paradox of the gospel indeed, the scandal of the incarnation is disguised in such commonplaces. The God whom Jesus introduces will not be kept at a celestial arm's length. Isn't that good? The God whom Jesus introduces will not be kept at a celestial arm's length. Jesus does not tell us how high and lofty God is, but how very near and present he is and how the routines of planting and harvesting are mundane clues to the nature and plan of God. That's so well said. Jesus just uses something in their mind and says, the kingdom of God is like a guy who's planting seeds. This is God 
in flesh describing his rule and reign. It's like a guy planting seeds. This is impressive. The kingdom of God involves, by the way, the evangelistic responsibility of men and women sowing seeds. Just breathe in that spiritual air for a moment. The kingdom of God involves sowed seeing by humans. His gracious invitation for us to participate in the establishment of the kingdom citizens in introducing them to the king, his values, his grace is, is immeasurable. Why and how would he allow us to be a part of that? Romans 8, excuse me, verse 10. We studied this when we were in Romans. Just listen, Romans 8, excuse me, 10, 8. What does this say? Speaking of Isaiah, the word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, it's in your mouth, you're speaking it. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. When you see that word preaching in Romans, we, we talked about this when we were back there, don't think of what I do on Sunday mornings. It just means proclaiming, explaining, uh, 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 making an articulation of. That's what we're preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says this. How then will they call on him whom they have in whom they have not believed, how will they believe in him they have not heard? How will they hear without a sower, a preacher? Listen, folks, that puts the responsibility of identifying citizens of the kingdom in your and my laps. How will they hear this, this text has been so misapplied. How will the hear unless a preacher preaches? That's not me standing up here. That's you and I out in our neighborhoods and workplaces talking to people about the kingdom and the king. His invitation to salvation. He introduces the sower sowing seeds. This is the duty of man's responsibility to take the message out. You can backfill that into the parable of the sower and then see that these responses are given by Jesus. This is what you might find. Some will be unimpressed. Some won't care. Others will respond for a while. It will start costing them something and they'll back away. And others that I fear could be sitting in this church may have years and years, maybe decades of attachment to Jesus. But their focus and values are more defined by the distractions of the world what Adam was talking about during our Sunday school hour, then they are the king and his word. The point of verse 26 is that we have a duty to sow the seed. The second indispensable factor in the work of salvation is in verses 27 and 28, the efficacy of God's saving work, the sureness 
efficacy. It's going to happen. The efficacy of God's saving work. So here's the picture. This, this, this guy is, is a farmer. He goes out. He ruffles the, uh, the, uh, the soil, gets it all fallow and ready to receive the seed. He puts the seed in. He covers it up, probably waters. And then we find out, verse 27, and he goes to bed at night. In a sense, listen, you could call this a theology of sleep. Faithful sowing during the day should give you comfortable sleep at night. Not sowing and not being evangelistically faithful in the day should cause us to turn in our sheets. And he gets up by day. (laughs) And... Lo and behold, the seed sprouts and then it grows. How? How does this happen? Well, he didn't know. Verse 27 gives us this theology of faithful sleep. And I really mean this. He just goes to bed. He's done everything he can for the seed to produce its crop. Goes to bed, gets up. Just like my first grade science experiment, one morning he gets up and he goes and looks at those rows where he put the seeds and what pops through? Sprout. Little green leaf. It grows without his effort. It grows without his lack of effort because sometimes this seed is scattered beyond his property line. He doesn't tend to it and it grows anyway. It's an incredible mystery. Jesus is teaching that the success of the gospel message, listen, like a sprouted seed, does not depend on human effort. It doesn't even depend on human understanding, but on divine initiative and on divine power. It succeeds because God is active. It's vital to remember that only God, only God can grant spiritual life. Only God can grant spiritual life. Only God can regenerate a dead heart. Only God can turn stony hearts to fleshly hearts. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3? We know John 3, 16, but back up to verse 3. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, (laughs) I love this, how can a man be born when he's already old? It's a great question. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit. A lot of debate on what water is. Just set that to the side for a second. The spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's the spirit's work. The Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit does not regenerate the heart, Titus chapter 3 says, it's impossible for belief I know we have this sing that we sing often, I have decided to follow Jesus, and that's true, but God decided that we would decide to follow Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 to 7. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord, ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, the creation, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then he says this. We have this treasure, the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Before we leave this little, this factor, just look back again at the little phrase. The seed sprouts. How he does not know. This should be... This should be comforting. This should give you confidence. This should, this should be assuring that your faithfulness in evangelizing doesn't need to turn into manipulation because you lack the confidence that the seed of the gospel will do its work by itself. And listen, God can do things radically. God can do things suddenly in the hearts of people one of the most fascinating accounts is the, the two thieves who were crucified on each side of Jesus. Remember that Matthew and Mark both say that both thieves were mocking Jesus. Remember? Both thieves, when they were nailed to the cross, were mocking Jesus. And then Luke tells us that eventually one of these thieves, in his final moments or hours, believes and rebukes the other thief. Listen, there are so many people who have given the seed to. So many people I know you have evangelized. So many family members I know your heart breaks over. You have shed tears over and you don't know what else to do if you've been faithful to tell them the gospel if you've been faithful to follow up, and even if they've given you a stiff arm, you can go to sleep with the knowledge that the mystery of God's work happens because of the planted message in the heart, not our own machinations or manipulations. I think it's fair to say that most people would have given up on that thief. And God saved him moments before hell. Don't give up. Be faithful in sowing the seed. Be thorough in explaining until they don't want to hear anymore and then you can go to sleep knowing that the seed is planted and that God's word and God's message of the gospel has power, has innate, mysterious power to bloom and blossom in that heart, not on our timing, but on his. I just think back how disappointed I was. I went two days behind all of my other classmates with this, the, their plants were sprouting. They were eating bean soup. I mean, they're, they're, it had gone way ahead of me and I hadn't seen a leaf. God was in charge of that. 
You know, in a silly way, I was thinking this morning, I was going over my notes thinking, in God's providence, that happened for this illustration a lot of years later, half a century later. It's just, or 10 years later. <laughs> God does the work. He plants the seeds. He goes to bed. It happens. How? He doesn't know. And neither do we. What a God. Okay, so we're responsible. God does the work, which leads us to the third factor, the confluence of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. I love the word confluence. It's mostly used of two rivers or tributaries that come together and make a new river or a new stream. This is the confluence. Where does human responsibility and divine sovereignty come together? It comes together in verse 29. But when the crop permits, who's in charge here? Who's in charge? The crop. In an odd way, our Lord Jesus Christ compares God to a crop. When the crop, the plant, permits, the agency is in the crop. He immediately, now we're back to the farmer, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. God and man both at work in the same verse. He closes off this little parable by pointing to the fact that the sower did not cause the growth, but the sower is involved in the harvest. Just a little aside, by the way, this is important if you're, if you're in your Old Testament reading because you'll see this. Reaping with a sickle is often a way that a scripture writer will symbolize the coming kingdom of God, especially in judgment. Joel chapter three, verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest day is ripe. Come, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, overflow for their wickedness is great. So the, great the harvest sometimes involves the redeeming of the saints and the judgment of sinners, Revelation 14, 15, and another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat in the cloud, on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour has come to reap because the harvest of the earth is ripe. So sometimes that sickle is, is used of divine judgment which pulls the saints to himself and judges sinners Jesus, being God in the flesh, obviously knew the use of the word sickle, and he uses it specifically here. When the crop permits, it's not up to the sower. Until the crop permits means that there could be a perceived lapse between evangelism and belief. There could be a perceived lapse between the Lord Jesus as the great sower and the kingdom being not only a people, but a place. I love the genius of our Lord basically using this, this parable to say, don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened that I'm not there yet. Don't be discouraged that the seed in others' hearts that you've sown has not sprouted yet. Don't be discouraged. Remember 2 Peter 3, 4? 
the mockers come and they say, where's the promise of his coming? Don't be surprised if people mock. Don't be surprised if the people in whom you sow the seed mock. Remember the thief on the cross went from mocking to ministry. (laughs) Mocking Jesus to ministering to the other thief. Wow. Man sows, God works, men participate in the harvest. How does this all work together? Who really is the agent of consequence in salvation? Is it the one who sows, the one who needs to believe? Is it the evangelist? Is it God? We've looked at this before, but I just want to show you this. It's just fascinating to me in John chapter 6. Turn over to John 6 for a moment. Lest anyone think that these concepts of divine sovereignty and man's responsibility are somehow new, Jesus has just fed 5,000, walked on water. Verse 22, he's standing on the other side. Large crowd of people come to him. And let me just show you some phrases. I want you to, if you have a little pencil, you can mark these in your Bible. Or if, if you want to write these down, I want you to look at these, these passages back to back. And listen to the Lord. Listen to Jesus talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the same breath, in the same sermon, in the same talk. And then watch how the people respond. Verse 29. Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. How clear is that? When you and I believe that's the work of God from the seed planted in our heart. Is that clear? Who's responsible? God is. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Where's the emphasis there? Coming and believing, man's responsibility. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Who is responsible there? God is. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Responsibility and sovereignty of God. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes, there's human responsibility, in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In the same verse is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How clear is that? He said, anyone can come, just come to me. But you won't come unless the Father draws you. I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Where's the responsibility in that verse? You have to believe. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone, he doesn't say the elect, he doesn't say the predestined, he doesn't say the chosen. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It intensifies here at the end of his sermon. He turns to his disciples. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. That's eternal life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are to you are spirit and our life. The spirit is the one who gives life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. There's the consequence of human responsibility. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. Talk about the third soil. There's Judas. So verse 65, he concludes by saying, For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Here's the deal. People can use any any one of those phrases and try to prove each side of man's responsibility and divine sovereignty. Jesus spoke all of them. But if that confuses you, look at how he ends at the end. The climax of the whole sermon is it's all up to the Father's regenerating power, but that doesn't mitigate against anyone's responsibility to believe. No one will ever stand in hell and say, you didn't draw me. But when they stand there, God will say, you didn't believe We look at this debate today and we're, we're confused by how can people have trouble with this? This is a new thing since Calvin and Arminius. Actually, it's not. Look at verse 66. As a result of this, the this is what he just said, that the Father draws in and only those who are drawn believe. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You think this is a new confusion or a new debate? God is ultimately the only one who can save. But that does not relieve anyone from the responsibility to believe. I can't unravel that mystery. I can't tell you how it can be solved. God is not a director of robots and man does not have free will. The only will he has is attached to his sin. He has a sinful will. Romans 6 tells us that. So where are we in our responsibility? I I think that 1 Corinthians 3 verses 6 and 7 help us. Paul says, I planted, there's the sowing, I planted and Apollos watered. He followed up and gave you more data, more information. But God was causing the growth so that neither the one who plants, that was Paul, nor the one who waters, that was Apollos, is anything but God who causes the growth. How clear is that? Be responsible, but ultimately, as a sower, as a waterer, look back and say, only God can do it. Where does that put us? It puts us on our knees, right? 
If God is the only one who saves, if God is the only one who works, if God is the only one who convicts of sin, then we ask God to do his work. And I think everyone, everyone understands this as a Christian. Can I prove that to you? Every Christian I know, if you're an exception, don't tell me. Every Christian I know has prayed at some point for the salvation of someone else. Right? Why? Do you understand what that does? When you are asking God to save someone, you are placing confidence in the true capital A agent of salvation, right? Why would anyone pray for another person's salvation if you could accomplish it without God's help? So much low-hanging fruit in this passage. So much. It teaches us to be patient. Listen, friends, I know, I know, I've spoken to some of you who have a spouse, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, a friend who you've told the gospel to, and they just are resistant. They're resistant, or they're in one of the three soils. They just, they just, you just don't know what to do. Be patient. If you've been faithful to sow that seed, God is the one who causes the growth. Have confidence. He can do the work with the word you've shared with them. He doesn't need our manipulations. Certainly we should follow up. That's why I read to you from 1 Corinthians, Apollos. I planted Apollos water. You know what watering is? You come and you give more, more attention, more follow-up, more data to someone else's. You know, another implication is if you ever lead someone to the Lord, don't think you're like part of the dynamic duo with Jesus you are likely not the sower and the water. That's probably the result of hundreds, if not thousands, of other little acts God has done in their life to bring them to that moment. In other words, never take the credit. I just always cringe to say when people say with an air of pride, you know, I led him to the Lord. <sighs> Did you really? It's okay to say, I was able to bring this person to Christ. That's great. We should bring all of our friends to Christ. But if that means that you were the one who did the salvation work, be careful, be careful, be careful. Also teaches us trust. The power's in the message. The power's in the message, not in you and me. That allows you to sleep at night. Remember Romans 8, God predestines. Remember Romans 10, salvation comes to all who believe. The same Apostle Paul who taught God's sovereignty and salvation in Romans 8 through 11 is the same one who said in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 16, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Man, the theology that leaks out of this, this passage is incredible. Theology proper, the study of God. God is sovereign and our almighty to save. Eschatology, his kingdom will come. The people will be saved and the place will be established even if we don't see it. Pneumatology, it's the Holy Spirit's work that regenerates the heart. Christology, he is the message of the message. He's the centerpiece of the 
seed being sown. Ecclesiology, evangelism, by the way, is not for you to herd them up and brand them. You herd them up, bring them to church, let the preacher brand them. No, no, no. Church is primarily for teaching and equipping. Yes, we do evangelism here and we should. Evangelism is out where you live and where you work. We gather to edify and worship. We scatter to evangelize. Soteriology, God sows, we scatter seed. Wow. Can we go back just for a minute to Woodmore Elementary School and Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1968? We all planted the, the, the seeds. We were all expectantly looking, checking, and waiting. None of us could do anything except come the next morning and see if it sprouted. And they all did sprout, but not on a timetable that all of us wanted. I think the takeaway for me here is sow and trust. Sow the seed and trust. Some people, I think, shy away from salvation because they fear if I don't see the fruit of this in the moment, it's not worth it, it's not real. No, 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 no. You're planting seeds. You may, think about this, you may plant the seed of the gospel in someone's life that might not be watered for years or decades but God will cause the growth. Some of you share the gospel with people on a plane, in a grocery store, in a restaurant. Nothing happened and you're tempted to say, well, that was not worth anything. No, no. <laughs> that was worth eternity. This motivates me. It motivates me to just be a sower. Tell people the gospel Know that there will be different responses. Know that some people could respond right away and some people may not respond until their dying moments like a thief on a cross. Are you watching? Are you praying? Are you watering? Are you waiting? Are you sowing? Are you involved? Jesus is... He's grasping our hands and saying, join me in establishing my kingdom by finding my citizens. That's incredible. What a privilege. What an unmatched, heralding privilege. But there's a huge, huge asterisk in this passage. Are you a soil that's heard the seed and yet to give your life to the Savior? Have you heard the message? Do you understand the truth? Can you even explain the gospel, but the cares of this world are pulling you to value it more than Christ? 
You tend to listen to this little voice that says, I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I was baptized, I did this. Look at what I've been. I've been in the church for a long time, but your affections are more for the world and its values than Christ and his kingdom. The seed is sitting in your heart. What are you doing with it? I just want to beg perhaps some of you to take what you believe and commit your life to it today. Right now, today. Some may say, Rick, are you trying to make me doubt my salvation? Yes, if you're not saved. Yes. So how do I know? Christ is your highest value. Remember our mission statement? Valuing Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by God's word. He makes a difference. Jesus is not a part of your life. He is the what? The point of a redeemed believer's life. If that's you, if you're questioning that, would you just suppress and crucify your pride and make today the last Sunday in September, a day marked in eternity when you finally put aside the hypocrisy, believe the gospel, repent, and be saved.